Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful that we have a great high priest, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, one who is uh, able to uh, sympathize, indeed empathize with us in, in our weaknesses, yet is without sin, that he is the perfect once for all atoning sacrifice for sin that the boldness and the confidence that we have to enter into your presence, to ask for forgiveness, to receive mercy and find grace is all based, grounded, and rooted in Christ's finished and accomplished work. And we take great comfort that once he finished his work as high priest and sacrifice, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, we also thank you, uh, those uh, who for many years have been praying uh, for uh, the Supreme Court to decide uh, with regard to the matter of of Roe v. Wade. Father, there is uh, not so much the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning that there is even now a greater responsibility on we who claim to know Christ, to reach out and to love our neighbor. We pray for peace in our nation. As a result of this decision, there are those, Father, who are upset at the, uh, the verdict, the outcome. Uh, and uh, we ask, O oh Lord God, that you would help us uh, to be instruments of peace. That uh, in, in our joy, we would not forget the least of these And that, Father, your church would have compassion on those who will find themselves in in situations where they don't know what to do. And so we pray for their wisdom. We pray for the the grace of Christ to to flow through your church uh, to be of great assistance and help. That we, as your instruments, would be those uh, instruments of mercy and of grace. We thank you also for your word, for its timelessness that we find in Christ and in your word with the help of your Holy Spirit, a place of safety and refuge, a place of health and healing, of reconciliation and of hope, of endurance, the steadfastness, as well as joy and delight. Father, we turn now uh, and ask that you would bless the, the preaching and the hearing of your word. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins once again. Uh, Open our ears and our heart, Lord God, to receive your word. And then with the help of your spirit, help us to apply it with all diligence and mercy and compassion. Uh, We ask and pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We begin uh, where we left off last week, which is at the end of uh, chapter 12 in Zechariah, and then moving into chapter 13. The, uh, the verses will flow together, so I'm going to read from the end of chapter 12 and then right into verse 13, because there is a connection between uh, what happens at the end of 12 and on into 13. We're told that in verse 11 of, of uh, Zechariah, Twelve that on that day uh, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramam in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, 
and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets in the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He'll say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. This is one of those chapters when, as you read it, you begin to think, okay, there's a little bit of hope here, and then suddenly things turn, and you're left kind of wondering. Uh, I think even the, the great Martin Luther, when he comes to the, uh, his, in his commentary on Zechariah 13 and 14, uh, even Luther is a bit exasperated and even says at one point, I have no idea what the prophet is talking about. Uh, which is helpful for us because if, a, if a, a scholar as great as Luther can be befuddled, um, that's encouraging. At the same time, we take seriously, again, what Paul says in Romans, that the things written in former time were written for our endurance and our hope. So there have to be some meaning th- from which we can draw what Zechariah is talking about here. And part of that, I think, is maybe helpful if I use a, an illustration uh, if you've ever been to uh, the optometrist, and I'm going to be careful here because I know we have some optometrists uh, in the, in the uh, audience, um, you, are, you have likely uh, been familiarized with a, an apparatus called a phoropter, uh, also known as a refractor. It's that mechanism that the optometrist places over your eyes. And he, uh, if you wear glasses, he sets it or she sets it to the prescription of your glasses, and then you look at the chart. And then you read the chart, you know, the smallest letters that you can read. And after you do that, the optometrist just then flips the lens and says, is that worse or better? And if you say worse, he tries another one. And then he goes, A or B, one or two. And then he keeps doing that until he gets it to the point where it's right where it needs to be. There's a sense when we read uh, Zechariah 13 and 14, we are peering through a, a phoropter. We're Appear, we're peering through a refractor because the, the, the flow of the book has been this steady, encroaching idea that God is purifying his people for a specific purpose, which is to, number one, get them ready to worship him, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the nation of Israel, both its cultural and, more importantly, its spiritual identity. And so the, the, the notion, the idea, the practice of uh, purity, holiness, goodness, 
love and mercy, that is, is at the heart of what's happening here. And God is going to do whatever is necessary to ensure the, the holiness and the purity and the goodness of his people. Uh, and the, the lens, if you will, that begins to get turned uh, is in verse 1 of chapter 13, where uh, speaking through Zechariah, God says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse from sin and uncleanness. The question that arises then is from what sin uh, and what uncleanness will God cleanse the house of David and Jerusalem? And why is it the house of David and Jerusalem? Well, we'll get to that part in a, in a moment. The answer to the immediate question from what sin or uncleanness that God will cleanse them from has to do with what takes place in verses 2 through 9. And because there's a lot packed in here, particularly 7 through 9, which those of you who know your gospel know that's uh, very uh, similar to what happens. It's actually talking about Christ. We're going to focus on verses 1 to 6 today. So pack uh, 7 to 9 uh, in your memory, and we'll take that up next week. But the, the specific sin and uncleanness that Zechariah is talking about here is um, the sin of idolatry and from the uncleanness of false teaching. The, the folly also of looking uh, to human leadership as the means of one's salvation and righteousness and goodness. Remember, these are the sins, particularly that of idolatry and false teaching. These are the sins that caused Israel to stray, to wander off trail and pursue their own ends rather than pursuing the glory of God. These sins are the, those that God is going to address and, uh, and cleanse the land from through this fountain that is opened that will cleanse the house of David and Jerusalem. This promise... Again, this is a consistent thing throughout the book. This takes us back to chapter 1 of Zechariah. When the exiles have returned to Jerusalem, and the Lord speaks to them through Zechariah, and he issues this invitation, return to me, and I will return to you. That if you live a life that's repentant, a life that is dedicated to keeping my commandments, these are the blessings that I will bestow upon you, just as I had promised to your forefathers. Now, some will, that, that invitation is extended to all, but only some will respond. You know, God extends his invitation, right? Many are called, but few are chosen. In Zechariah 13, God continues to call his people. Remember, too, that throughout the book of Zechariah, there is this sifting that takes place, even among the exiles that have returned that God is sifting from the exiles that have returned from his people. He is sifting out those who are half-hearted followers from those who are whole-hearted worshipers. So this invitation to return to him, this promise to cleanse from sin and uncleanness is extended to all, but it's also a sifting which is implied by the refining process that takes place at the end of the chapter. So God continues to sift his people. This, again, remember, the, the, if you, you know, I'm sure you've been reading Zechariah devotionally all these weeks. But if you go to Zechariah 5, the vision of the flying scroll, 
is a vision of sifting, where God is separating half-hearted followers from wholehearted worshipers because only the wholehearted worshiper will look on the Lord whom they have pierced and mourn what they have done. Only the wholehearted worship will respond to the spirit of grace and they will plead for mercy. Only the wholehearted will abandon their idols, stop listening to false teaching, and pledge their full faith and hope in the Lord their God. So there is this process whereby, and so I think the challenge, the difficulty of coming to grips with what the prophet is saying is part of that sifting process. Because wholehearted worshipers will hear the difficulty of these words and rather than walk away, so well, I, I just, I can't make sense of this. I can't deal with a God like this. The wholehearted worshiper says, what kind of God is, is this that demands this kind of loyalty, this kind of faithfulness, and who promises grace and mercy and forgiveness? Zechariah 13 ends, right, with that process of God refining his people like silver, testing them like gold, so that they will call upon his name. It's another way of saying they will worship him. They will not worship him, however, above all things until and unless they have been refined. And that's one of the challenges that we have with regard to following our God and Savior, is that sometimes he allows and ordains that our faith be refined and tested like silver and refined like gold. The Apostle Peter talks about this in his letter. He says, though for a brief time you've had to suffer various trials, so that the testing of your faith, he says, more precious than gold, might be proved genuine. Even Jesus himself, on the night that he is to be betrayed in John 16, tells his disciples, in this world you're going to have tribulation. You're going to be refined by the things that you suffer and endure. But take heart, he says, I've overcome the world. So if God ordains the refining process, The promise that's contained in that is that he will sustain you through the refining process so that your faith, your character, will come forth as gold, will will come forth as silver. It will be revealed. Crisis does more than just uh, test our character. It reveals our character and it builds our character. And God refines us because he will do whatever is necessary to bring us back into relationship with him. If that requires that we be sifted, we be refined, then so be it. Remember, he gave us his one and only son, whom he allowed to go through that own, his own process of refining, his own fire of persecution, his own fire of tribulation, so that we might be spared that ultimate fire, that ultimate tribulation, and receive mercy and find grace in him. So God refines us, says the prophet, by cleansing us of our sin and uncleanness in verse 13.1. The, the very notion, too, that God awakens us and makes us aware of our sin, that's a process of refinement. We're going along thinking that we're good people. We're going along thinking that we're doing our best, that we're upright, we're moral, we're ethical. Right? We don't cheat on our taxes. We, you know, we pick up stray pieces of paper on the ground and we put them in the trash can. We say hello to our neighbor. We even watch their kids if, we, if they need us to. We're always doing good deeds. And yet there comes that moment when the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, makes us aware that despite all of that goodness, there is a gulf between us and God. 
that is an act of refining. That is an act of God making us aware that our sin has made a separation between us and him. At the same time, then God has bridged that gulf. And he makes us aware of our sins so that he can lead us to repentance. Paul talks about this in Romans, that it's the kindness, the goodness of God that is meant to lead us to repentance. It's good and it's kind of God to remind us that our sin has made a separation. In the same way that it is good and kind of a physician when he tells us that your blood pressure is too high or you've got a a lump that needs addressing or when you go to the optometrist and says you really need to wear reading glasses because you can't see. That's a kindness. That's a goodness because it's, it's helping us to change our behavior, to affect our lifestyle. God makes us aware of our sin in order to remove it, in order to cleanse us from it. It's worth noting, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. <clears throat> Peter tells us, too, um, second, in Second Peter, that the reason why God does this is because he's patient, and he doesn't want anyone to perish. We, we've read the, the Apostles' Creed about Christ. We've sung about Christ coming back to judge the living and the dead. We, our brother Randy reminded us of the faithfulness of God, both to, both to bless and to, to bless the faithful and to judge those who are not. God is patient. His desire is that none would perish, but that all would come to the full measure of repentance in his Christ, that no one, no one is beyond God's forgiveness No one. Because if you put yourself in the shoes of these exiles who have returned, something that may be running in the back of their mind is, will God abandon us just as he abandoned our forefathers? And God is reminding them, the reason why I abandoned your forefathers is because they abandoned me. I sent them centuries and centuries of prophets and warnings. So... No, I won't abandon you so long as you keep covenant with me. And the covenant that he makes with us is one that allows us to receive mercy and find grace. Also, just to be aware, too, that no one is beyond God's forgiveness because no one is without sin. I like how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 6.11. He writes in that chapter a list of those who are excluded from the kingdom of God makes a long list. And then just at the point where we're feeling good about ourselves, I'm not like that, I'm not like that, Paul says, and such were some of you. And so, and he would include himself in that, that here with this list of of sinful behavior, it says, and such were some of you. He says, but, but, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so we put ourselves in that company that through faith in Christ, we are sanctified. That's a past event. We're made holy. And yet in the same breath, Paul reminds us that we are called to be holy, to practice and to live out that holiness. That's what God is doing here in Zechariah. I have set you apart. I have brought you out from your captivity put you back in your homeland for the very purpose of living the way that will most honor me and most bless you. A sanctified, holy life of obedience 
and mercy and grace and compassion. The cleansing that is promised in Zechariah 13.1 obviously anticipates uh, the death of Christ as the atoning sacrifice for sin. It anticipates our need to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. The good news is that God promises to wash away the sin that stains our soul, clouds our conscience, and ruins our relationships. The fountain that is open, I believe, refers to the wounds that Christ endured on the cross. Because it's the blood of his atoning sacrifice applied to us by the Holy Spirit through the hearing of the word of God That is what makes forgiveness, mercy, and salvation available. It starts, I believe, with the house of David. It starts in the city of Jerusalem because, as Jesus told the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. And then it extends outward to include every people, tribe, nation, and language. So it starts at the very heart of the nation, the very center of their being, if you will, David, their greatest king. And Jerusalem being the place where God has placed his name, the temple of God, symbolizing his presence. Salvation starts there and it flows. You see this, this is what happens in Ezekiel. At the end of Ezekiel, you get that marvelous, baffling image of the temple with the river that flows out of the temple. Why? Because it's flowing from the temple out into the world. And so it starts at the very heart of the city of God and then it flows into the world that he has created so that all may drink or all may wash in that fountain and be cleansed. And so God promises to refine us by cleansing us from sin and uncleanness. How does he do that? He starts with idols. He refines us by removing our idols. Notice how this works. First, it's an internal thing. He changes our heart. He changes our status. We go from sinner to saint. We go from hard heart to soft heart. We go from a conscience that is guilty and clouded with shame to a conscience that is cleared out by the word of God and now replaced, if you will, by a mindset informed by the Spirit. So the change is inward and then it reflects outward because after that, we go after the things that we used to worship that we have to abandon in order that we might worship God with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our soul. Read verses 2 and 3 and you see, you hear what the prophet says, and on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the enemies of the idols of the land, uh, cut off the names rather, of the idols from the land, so that they'll be remembered no more. I will also remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his mother and father who bore him will say, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him or stab him uh, when he prophesies. That's right out of the, go back into, I think, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It talks about the penalties for false prophets. So we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But God's going to remove these idols from the land. We read a text like that. We hear a text like that. And we think, you know, that doesn't really apply to us. I mean, I 
<clears throat> I don't have an idol at home. I don't have a little totem that I've carved, a little, you know, a little Asherah, a little altar to Baal. And plus our culture, I mean, we're living just, you know, a stone's throw from New York City, the center of sophistication and intellectual knowledge. There's no way any modern person uh, worships idols. If we think that, we're fooling ourselves. In his book, uh, We Become What We Worship, uh, Greg Beale defines an idol like this. Anything your heart clings to for ultimate security. An idol is anything our heart clings to for ultimate security. He also says that what we revere, we resemble, either for our ruin or restoration. So we become what we worship, either to our benefit and to the glory of God or to our harm. We either commit ourselves to God, we identify him with him, we take on his character, or we commit ourselves to some object of the creation and take on the character of that thing that we worship. We'll distill this a bit further. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says fairly much the same thing. He says, the one way to discover, how do you discover what are the idols in your life? You ask yourself one simple question. What is that thing in your life that if you lost it, you would almost lose the will to live? What is that one thing in your life that if you lost it, if it was taken from you, you would almost lose the will to live? An idol, he says, is anything that's more important to us than God. Anything that absorbs our heart and imagination more than God. Anything we seek to give us what only God can give us. It's a, it's a good thing to be healthy, but we can make an idol of our health. It's a good thing to be in a family, but we can make an idol of our family. It's a good thing to, to be single. We can make an idol of our singleness. We can make an idol of our marriage or of our children. And we begin to prize and value them. We can think about our reputation as maintaining a good thing, but we can worship that so that our pride gets the better of us. We begin to realize that there are these idols. We may not sort of tack them on the wall. We may not have a little shrine and a little closet somewhere, but they're parked in our driveway. Or they're in our office or we hold it in our hand and we look at it 27 hours of the day. <laughs> there are cultural idols that we have. And I think this is one thing that here in the States, uh, we have created a, a, an idol of, of radical individualism. We idolize our personal happiness at the expense of the greater community. We don't think about self-sacrifice. We think about people sacrificing themselves to make me happy. And the idea of me sacrificing myself to make somebody else happy, that doesn't work. Other cultures do the opposite. Maybe uh, cultures that are based on shame and honor make an idol of the family or the clan. So that responsibility to them overrides and overrules any personal responsibility we may have. You think of cancel culture as an idol. Because what does cancel culture do but make an idol of our feelings? Perceived offense becomes real offense. Words somehow which we were told years ago really don't mean anything other than the meaning you put in them suddenly now are, 
are made to be violent. Choice is, uh, a, is an idol of our culture as well. And then there are theological idols. This is one that I find myself prone to <laughs> more than I, I care to admit because when you worship doctrinal purity rather than the God from whom all doctrine flows, the great risk there is that we can all become Pharisees. Right? The Pharisees, their heart was in the right place. They were trying to guard the truth. But their desire for the truth made them hard-hearted. So there needs to be a balance between truth and love. And there are religious idols that we construct. We make those when we assume what the gospel means rather than what the gospel means. Now, the gospel is John 3.16 at its root. But the gospel is not my testimony. The gospel is not my idea of how God should be or how God works. We make the gospel an idol when we add to it or we subtract from it. That can lead to moralism and legalism. We can use it then as a pretext for abuse and power. And I think we have seen the bitter fruit of that within the SBC and other churches and fallen leaders. Then there are political idols that we correct. And by the way, these are all idols that the Jews at the time also constructed themselves. So it's not just unique to 21st century American culture. The, the people of Zechariah's day wrestled with these very same idols, the political idols. Those of us who are old enough to have lived through the 80s, we can remember the rise of the religious right, which was to be the antithesis of the rise of the religious left in the 60s. And we thought that was a great thing at the time until we realized the unintended consequences that those who are politically shrewd began to realize we can capitalize on this religious fervor and we can make them sort of a wing of the party. And so we are not treated as those who are speaking the gospel, but we become a voting block and we fall into the trap of identity politics and all of that. These are idols. What are you clinging to for your ultimate security? What is the thing that if you lost it, you would almost lose the will to live? We understand that idolatry breaks the first and the second commandment. We have a God before God, and we make an image of him. And God hates idolatry. And we know he hates idolatry because of the penalty for it, which is death. A son rises up to speak a false word. His parents kill him. We can make an idol, too, of Jesus. Why do I say that? I say that because that's what Peter did. Remember, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they run through a list. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns directly and says, who you say that I am? And Peter speaks clearly, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done, Simon Barjona. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then Almost immediately after that, Jesus begins to talk about his impending death, how he's going to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And Peter doesn't like this talk, and he pulls Jesus aside. He says, don't talk like this. Don't talk like that. You're the Messiah. 
And Jesus' response to him is, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. What happened at that moment? What happened at that moment is that Jesus did not fit into Peter's idea of who Jesus should be. You're not the Messiah I want. You're not the Messiah I think you need to be, Jesus. You need to be like this. And Jesus sets him straight. Sometimes we idolize Jesus. We worship a Jesus who agrees with us. With just about everything. And if there's any disagreement between Jesus and us, we have a sit-down with Jesus and say, Jesus, you've got to see things from my perspective here. If we're into doctrine, we worship a, a Jesus who's theologically aligned with us. If we're into justice, we worship a Jesus who is a culture warrior. There's a religious Jesus. There's a political Jesus. A Jesus who overlooks our faults, approves of all of our ideas because we're brilliant, after all. A Jesus who looks like us, thinks like us, behaves like us. A Jesus who is an idealized vision of our values and our desires. He's really a Jesus of our own creation, the Jesus we want rather than the Jesus we need. That's an idol. Zechariah's people did the same thing. Surely God is just like one of the other gods. He can be manipulated and massaged into giving us what we want. What happens when God strikes down that idol of Jesus that we make? What happens when the Jesus we idolize lets us down? When the healing that we believe Jesus owes us doesn't come? When the reconciliation that we believe Jesus is obligated to bring to us doesn't come? What happens at that moment? What happens at that moment is Jesus begins to reveal to you the idol, and then he starts to work on changing your view of him, changing your heart. We begin to begin to worship Jesus as he really is, not who he thinks we, he is. I think some of us make an idol of God as well. Here's what I mean. Some of us, and maybe you have, if it's not you, you've run into people like this, who, who, who think God is rather harsh and, and unkind. That's idolatry too. Life's been hard on you, so you blame God. He's cold. He's hard-hearted. He's a control freak. You think the only purpose that he has is to just dominate you and to control every aspect of your being. You think the God of the Old Testament perhaps is a cruel warrior, warlord. Well, the God of the New Testament is a loving, gentle kind of God, forgiving. Both views are false. A sincere and diligent study of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, will prove that image to be false. I mean, we all know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We all know John uh, 3.16. But do we know Isaiah 49.14-16? But Zion said... The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Here's God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. There are other verses like that, but that's the classic. Can a woman forget 
the child that is nursing at her breast, the child that she gave birth to. Can a woman forget that? The answer is no. God says, neither will I forget you. I have, I have engraved your name on the palms of my hands. And Jesus says almost the same thing in John 10 when he calls himself the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Remember too, Zechariah 2, where God tells the people, I will be a wall of fire all around you and I will be the glory in your midst. I don't know what your image or what your view of God is or what it was growing up and maybe you're struggling with a, a, an image of God that is like that. Let me commend to you the, the God of Zechariah, the God of Isaiah, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who does not forget, but the God who cares for his own like a nursing mother cares for her child. Like a hen gathering her chicks underneath her. That's how Jesus described his deep, deep desire to display love upon Jerusalem. How he said, I wanted to take you under my wings and comfort you and protect you. If, if your image of God is one of too harsh or too gentle, I invite you to see him anew. The cure for that kind of idolatry, any kind of idolatry, is the truth. And that's why Jesus came. The thing that Jesus hates, the thing that God hates most of all, is sin and idolatry. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't hate us. He hates the things that we do. The things that come from a corrupt and depraved heart. Jesus came to change all that. He came as truth incarnate. The law was given through Moses, says John, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's Christ. Truth is the cure for idolatry. And Jesus said in John 8, 32, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free to live as God intended you, in dependence upon him, in worship of him, in peace and harmony with your brothers and sisters, the surest way to know the truth is to know Christ, is to listen to Christ, to see him as the savior of the world, the savior of those who put their trust in him. Truth is the antidote, which is why God, after destroying idols, then, in the last point, he removes false teachers from our midst. Verses uh, 4 to 6 in Isaiah, or rather in Zechariah. It says, On that day every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He'll, put on a, he'll not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he'll say, I'm no prophet, I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He'll say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. The reference there to a hairy cloak, if you remember, when, when we are introduced to John the Baptist, in the Gospels, and even Elijah fits this. What is he wearing? He's wearing a, a camel hair coat because that was the dress code for a prophet, right? Where today you might, well, you dress more casually. You might even wear a three-piece suit or somewhere a robe and stole to proclaim the word of God. Back then, if you were a prophet, you wore a coat of, a hairy coat. But these prophets, says Zechariah, they don't wear the hairy coat to tell the truth. They wear the hairy coat in order to deceive and then when they're pressed on this, they say, no, no, I'm, a, I'm just a farmer. You, you got me wrong. As a matter of fact, I was even sold into this. It wasn't even my idea. 
Some guy sold me into this lifestyle and I'm just doing it. And then his parents, well, they asked, well, what about those wounds? And the, the Hebrew here is a bit unclear. It could mean his back or it could mean his chest. The reference is that these are the markings that the prophets would make, the false prophets especially. Remember when, when Elijah's having his contest with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. And the prophets of Baal are trying to summon down fire from heaven. Uh, the, the Bible says that they were cutting themselves as was their custom, these false prophets. And so here these self-inflicted wounds, the, prophets, the false prophet describes as the wounds I received by my loved ones. My lovers gave me these wounds. Not, not me. They didn't come from me. I got these from somebody else. I'm just an innocent bystander in this. But they're lying the whole time. One of my favorite characters, if you ever watched the, the TV show uh, Parks and Recreation, one of my favorite characters was uh, Ron Swanson. Ron was a, a, a no-nonsense, tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. had a great mustache as well. Um, he loves freedom, loves capitalism, and he loves most of all telling the truth. There's one episode in which he is being sued by uh, this really annoying character, Dr. Jeremy Jam, who somehow they decide to make a dentist. I don't know why. But in order to help Ron win his case, his co-workers decide that they're going to lie for him during their deposition. And when Ron finds out about this, he's incredibly angry because he doesn't like people who lie. He wants them to tell the truth. And the premise of Parks and Recreation, it was that it was like a, a documentary. And so you would cut from the scene in the deposition room to a, just a headshot of Ron talking to the camera. And he would, after he finds out that his coworkers have lied, and he wants them to tell the truth. He says, I hate lying. The only thing I hate more than lying is skim milk, which is water lying about being milk. Well, there's one thing God hates in addition to idolatry. It's false teaching because false teaching is like skim milk. It's teaching that's lying about being true. One kind of false teaching that's spread is that God is just like any other God. He's just like any other idol. You just got to figure out how to massage his ego, say the right words, and you can get him to do whatever you want. Another kind of false teaching redefines sin as not being an offense against God, but anything that limits your potential and prevents you from achieving your destiny. Those of you who remember way back Saturday Night Live, the old character Stuart Smalley, who is a self-help guru, and he would tell his viewers, I want you to look in the mirror, and I want you to say these words every day when you wake up. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That's a kind of image of a God of a self-help, self-potential. That's not true. Because in reality, the truth is otherwise. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. And not everybody's going to like us. And we're not going to have our best life now either. Because if God intended for this world to be our best life now, there'd be no need for life everlasting. The truth has to be, the, the, the lie has to be replaced by the truth. God has to, re, has to cleanse us inwardly. He has to remove our idols. He has to replace false teaching with the truth that we are loved by him unconditionally, that he has atoned for our sin through the sacrifice of Christ, and then we can begin to live wholeheartedly for him. 
And that refining process is painful, but it's necessary. When I was uh, being interviewed um, for the position of, of a pastor here, um, I received a long questionnaire. <laughs> and uh, you all probably read it. Um, so you know there was one question in there that talked about describing a particularly difficult time in, in uh, your life. And that happened to me in the fall of 2015, I believe. I'm stretching my memory here. I had just been let go <laughs> several months before by the church I served in Ohio. There was a disagreement between the leadership and out I went. Um, and I remember preparing and praying. We were getting ready to go to Cape Cod at that time. And I was reading uh, my Bible. My dog at the time, Penny, was out on the patio with me. It was a beautiful fall day. And I was reading through Isaiah 40. And I came to Isaiah 40, verses 18 to 19. We all know Isaiah 40, right? They who... Uh, you know, they shall run and not grow weary. They'll mount up like wings like eagles, right? We love the end of Isaiah 40. Right in the middle of Isaiah 40 are these lines. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman, cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it, cast for it silver chains. Now, normally, I would skip right over that passage, and I go right to the end of the chapter, because I want the part about growing you know, strong and not getting weary. But at that moment, that day, it's like the, as if the Holy Spirit just said, stop for a moment, and just, I want you to ask yourself a question. <laughs> what is your heart clinging to for your ultimate security? What is that thing that if I took it from you, you would almost lose the will to live? What idol have you made, Michael? The answer came like that, and it hurt my character, my integrity, my name, and my ministry. All of those, over the span of two and a half years leading up to that moment, all of those had been destroyed through everything that I endured from 2013 to 2015. My character, my integrity, my name, and my ministry. All of them were gone. And then I realized they had to be destroyed because I had made them an idol. I had worshipped my character. I had worshipped my integrity. I had worshipped the name I had crafted. I had worshipped my ministry. That's who I was. Ask me what I was back then. I would say, I'm a pastor. That's who I am. It's what I do. It's what God made me to do. And then I realized that's an idol. Because I'm not those things in entirety. I am made in the image of God. I am a man bearing the image of God. And so I confessed my sin of idolatry. I made a commitment to find my identity in Christ and in him alone Find in him the source of my character, the source of my integrity, the source of my name, the source of my ministry. I don't own anything. I don't own my name. I don't own my character. I don't own my integrity. I don't own my ministry. It's all his. 
that's a hard lesson to learn. That's a hard thing to let go of. I don't know if you have ever been in that kind of crucible. It's painful. I didn't like it because I thought I was a lot better than that. To find out you're not is a hurtful thing. But that's exactly what the truth does. It levels you. It refines you. So that on the other end of it, you come out refined like silver and tested like gold. What's your idol? Who is your idol? What's the thing that your heart is clinging to for ultimate security? What's that thing in your life such that if you lost it, if it were taken from you, you would almost lose the will to live? Career? The right school? Is it family? Is it belonging to the right peer group? You know, making the team? Is it your sense of honor? Is it your integrity? Is it your, what is it? I don't know, but the Spirit of God does. And if the Spirit of God can open your heart to ex reveal those idols to us all, imagine the kind of people we would become. Humble, gracious, compassionate. Open to the move and work of the Spirit. Forgiving. All of the things that Paul talks about in Colossians about being tender-hearted, forgiving one another, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another just as in Christ God has forgiven us. The Lord will do whatever is necessary to refine us because the Lord will do whatever is necessary to refine us, to restore us into relationship with him. You cannot worship God in an idol. And the refining fire of God's loving discipline will test the quality of your faith and God willing reveal the quality of it as well. It will reveal the object of your faith, the source of our identity, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a hymn, I think, at the end of this service. The old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. There is a great line in that hymn that says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we welcome the refining process, as painful as it is, because we know our Lord Jesus himself went through the fire, that we, we would be spared the ultimate fire, that he... Oh, Lord God, has made it possible for our faith to be tested and to be proven genuine. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help us follow you with our whole heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.